physicians, the, the whole idea of harm reduction should come naturally because particularly in, in affluent societies, much of what we do in our everyday medical practice is in a way harm reduction. Hello world. Welcome to the Vaping Unplugged podcast. Everything you need to know about vaping and tobacco harm reduction. Hi everyone. Uh, you're listening to the podcast Vaping Unplugged, where we talk about vaping and harm reduction glo globally. My name is Lisa, and today we invited exceptional guest, Dr. Jeffrey Singer, who is a senior fellow at Cato Institute um, and who is also a practicing surgeon. Thank you so much, Dr. Singer, for making your time today for us. I'm happy to be here. It's our pleasure. Well, um, before we start talking about the topics that we want to cover throughout the interview, I wanted to give you some time to introduce yourself, maybe talk a little bit, bit about your work, um, if that would be possible. Sure. Well, I'm, uh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, where I've been practicing uh, as a surgeon uh, for 40 years now. Um, and uh, for the last... Uh, Seven years, I've been a senior fellow as well at the Cato Institute in Washington. And uh, in addition to that, uh, before that, for several years, I was an adjunct scholar there. So I make frequent trips back and forth to Washington. Um, and um, because I'm a physician, um, a lot, my main area of focus uh, at the Cato Institute is on things such as harm reduction, uh, the war on drugs, and just general uh, uh, things that that have to do with healthcare in general. Thank you so much. Uh, I saw from your works that you have been commenting a lot on observing um, um, public health policies globally and generally. So before we dive into tobacco harm reduction and safer nicotine alternatives, I just wanted to ask you generally about prohibitionism. And I'm not, not, not even talking about the products that could have a potential public health benefit, because I know you're also talking about foreign drugs, as you've mentioned. So has prohibition been successful so far? What do you think about that? I think it should be obvious to everyone that prohibition is not successful. In fact, uh, many of uh, the harm, re harm reduction is a good idea in healthcare in general. But when it comes to the prohibited substances, many of them are made much more harmful because they're prohibited. So for example, when it comes to uh, the, the war, I, I sometimes call it not the war on drugs, but the war on some drugs. Because for example, <clears throat> in the United States, it's perfectly okay if you want to alter your consciousness with alcohol, but just don't you dare alter your consciousness with cannabis because we'll put you in a cage. Um, so it's obviously just, it's very arbitrary. It's not based on any scientific evidence. There are certain drugs that, you know, policymakers have decided they're going to be bad drugs and the other drugs are okay drugs. And of course, they tried to prohibit alcohol in this country uh, from the early 1920s to 1933. It was a disaster. Uh, but people don't have, they have a tendency not to learn from past mistakes. So when we had alcohol prohibition, we, we made uh, small, what would have been small time criminals into huge, wealthy, powerful mobsters who were running cities. Uh, there were, you know, gang wars with major weapons in those days over distribution territory. And people were dying from drinking alcohol that was impure, that had 
methyl alcohol in it or was denatured. So they undid that. And so they decided instead to shift their emphasis on different drugs. And so now we've taken what would have also been small, minor criminal organizations and turned them into these huge, powerful, multinational drug trafficking organizations. A lot of Americans think that it's uh, the Mexican drug cartels, but I'm sure you know from where you're located that these are transnational organizations and there's cooperation among them. There are organizations in Albania and the Balkans and Mexico, and they they locate in countries around the world. So, for example, in Colombia and in Ecuador, in South America, some of the uh, European Balkan uh, drug trafficking organizations are already setting up shop along with Mexican ones. So uh, we've empowered them with prohibition. And there's no question, some, some of these drugs can be harmful, but they're made more harmful by the fact that people are purchased them on a black market where they can't be certain as to their purity, uh, their dosage, or even if it is what they think they're buying. Um, and so one of the best harm reduction tools I could think of is ending prohibition. But even if we had ended prohibition, like we have, for example, tobacco is not prohibited and it could be harmful. Um, and that's why there are harm reduction tools for tobacco. In fact, and I've made this point many times, to physicians, the whole idea of harm reduction should come naturally because particularly in, in affluent societies, much of what we do in our everyday medical practice is in a way harm reduction. For example, uh, if doctors have a patient who, uh, let's say they have, because they've been eating wrong and not getting enough exercise, so they developed uh, obesity and they have uh, mild uh, borderline diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol. And the doctor knows if I could just get you to change your eating habits and your exercise habits, we wouldn't even need to have you on any medicine. We can get you in healthier condition. But whether the patient can't or doesn't want to, for whatever reason, the doctor prescribes blood pressure medicine and uh, drugs to get your cholesterol down and diabetes pills. Well, in a way, they're practicing harm reduction. They're not necessarily endorsing the choices that their patient's making, but they see their mission as a physician to do the best they can to reduce the harm that's coming from their patient's choices in a non-judgmental, non-moralizing way. So this is what we do every day, and, and we should feel just as committed to doing that when it comes to, to uh, things that you know society has tend to tended to attach taboos to, such as uh, using currently illegal drugs or tobacco. Uh, thank you so much. And just to sum up, so prohibition doesn't work and it clearly drives consumers um, to the black market and also feeds the criminals on the black market. And instead, harm reduction is something we should be approaching in different aspects of public health. Um, just as a short follow up question, there is an evidence historical that prohibition has not work, but worked, but politicians are still sticking to it. Why do you think that is happening? I think there's a number of reasons. I think some of them are just, you know, it's many people have been in, indoctrinated for decades. I mean, when I was young, they were teaching us in school all the time with, and had advertisements, et cetera. So you grow up uh, unquestioningly just assuming these things are bad. So that's part of it. 
Uh, some is moralizing, that you're trying to impose your morals on, on others. And the way I see it is I'm, I'm all in favor of you following your moral code. I think you should. But I don't think you have a right to impose your morals on other people. And uh, that doesn't mean you agree with them or support their choices, but they have their own rights to make their own choices. And you have to respect that. And so, and then I, a lot of times the politicians are, are way behind where the people are. So when they see that attitudes have changed, suddenly they want to get out in front of the parade and carry the flag and make it like it was their idea. But most politicians don't have the courage to kind of lead the way. Instead, they, in the way they follow, but they want to appear to be leading. So they wait to see uh, how much momentum there is in the general public for an idea before they decide to commit on it. And I think that's a, a large part of it. And then finally, for example, with a lot of prohibitions, um, you know, there's a whole industry dependent on keeping it going. You have the, the prison uh, industry, you have the law enforcement industry, uh, you have prosecutors who are hoping to advance their their careers. And, and politically, first they start off, you know, as a prosecutor, and they, you know, get a high profile arrest of some drug dealer, and then from there they get elected attorney general, and then maybe governor. And so, you know, there's a lot of motivation that way as well. Thank you so much uh, for the answer. Um, Dr. Singer, you've mentioned misinformation, and I think that's very important. Uh, us as consumer activists on the vaping side, we face that every day, how on a large scale misinformed uh, and people are and politicians are about vaping generally. And um, I read your recent blog on nicotinophobia, and I think that uh, gives a vital perspective on how nicotine has been demonized through well, globally, actually. So could you talk a little bit about uh, that part? Could you elaborate on this topic, the demonization on, of nicotine? Why is this happening and what's wrong with it? Yes, but I want to get credit because I created that word and I'm hoping that'll become popularized and maybe I'll get a mention in Wikipedia one day as the person who invented the word. So <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, there's this uh, irrational fear of, of nicotine. Um, and uh, you know, of course, listeners to this podcast know this, that nicotine can be addictive. And it's the, it, it is the component of tobacco smoke that is addictive, but it's otherwise not harmful. The harmful aspect of it is that it makes you want to keep smoking tobacco smoke to get the nicotine. And it's the other components of tobacco smoke that are harmful to the body. They cause cancer and cardiovascular problems, et cetera. So, but nicotine by itself, in fact, the, the, uh, the, the, the Royal Society of Public Health in, in, UK, in the UK, I'm quoting them. They say it is, quote, a relatively harmless drug. It's sort of in the same, I, people could kind of think of it in the same way they think of caffeine. So it's a stimulant. Uh, but unlike caffeine, um, it also has a calming effect to it, too. It activates beta endorphins. So at the same time that it can make you more focused and alert, it also could calm you down, which caffeine can't do. And that probably explains why over the years before we knew all of the chemistry of nicotine, a lot of tobacco smokers, when they'd be confronted with a stressful situation, you'd say, you see them say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I have to have a cigarette right now. 
uh, to calm down. And, you know, they didn't realize it was the nicotine in the cigarette that was calming them down. So they were kind of self-medicating. There's also a lot of recent research, which is fascinating. Uh, people who have schizophrenia, uh, if you, psychiatrists will tell you, you almost expect when you are, uh, you know, evaluating the patient, they're almost always very heavy tobacco smokers. It's almost, uh, you're surprised if they're not. It kind of goes with, with, the, with the profile. And what we've learned is uh, it appears that nicotine kind of, you know, with schizophrenia, your thought processes are sometimes very disjointed and disorganized. And it, it tends to help get your thought processes a little more organized and orderly. So what, what uh, is being, what a lot of researchers are thinking now is perhaps the reason why so many people with schizophrenia are heavy tobacco smokers is because, again, they've learned just through experience to self-medicate, that they're actually functioning cognitively better when they're smoking. In fact, there was a recent research study you might be familiar with in the UK where uh, institutionalized people with schizophrenia who were all smokers, they were switched over. They were offered uh, nicotine e-cigarettes as a substitute. And it was universally accepted. Everyone who had been uh, smoking tobacco, happily switched over to nicotine, e-cigarettes. Uh, so it wasn't for the flavor of the tobacco. It was for the effect. And so, of course, these uh, uh, re these these healthcare workers in, in the UK were thinking, you know, if I can get you to self-medicate with nicotine separate from the tobacco smoke, that would be better for your health. So that's, you know, that's basically a harm reduction tool. But also nicotine, um, there's a lot of research being done that might be helpful in, uh, in, in Alzheimer's. We don't know. None of this is certain. So don't take this to the bank. But there's a lot of suggestive research that it might be helpful in Alzheimer's, Tourette's syndrome, uh, clinical depression, uh, and, and uh, like I mentioned, schizophrenia. Um, in addition to, to that, um, well, I, it's, it's important to say I'm not trying to push nicotine. Nicotine, like almost any drug, if you take too much of it, it could have toxic levels. So, um, and caffeine as well. Caffeine, if you take too much caffeine long term, some people just say they get jittery if they've had too many cups of coffee, but they could also, you can get uh, irregular heartbeat. It increases your acid levels in your stomach and it, and, and it makes reflux happen up your esophagus. So it can increase uh, a, a tendency to, to uh, esophagitis or ulcer disease. So um, again, too much of anything continuously can be harmful. Nicotine uh, can cause high blood pressure and probably narrowing of the blood vessels over time in, in not everybody, but in some people. So, you know, they're not without they're not completely harmless, but compared to many of the other drugs we regularly ingest that are legal, um, they're relatively harmless. I mean, certainly less, both of them are less harmless than, than alcohol, for example. And um, uh, just like nicotine is addictive, caffeine can be addictive as well. And there is a syndrome of caffeine addiction. Um, it's not as highly addictive as nicotine is, but it can be. So I, I think everybody just needs to calm down because nicotine taken by itself, if you think of it as uh, people may enjoy it for the same reasons they enjoy caffeine, then 
then, then people should stop moralizing about it. And in fact, now, of course, there's a big, there was a big thing that happened in our country a couple of weeks ago where the Senate majority leader, Chuck Schumer, got very upset because there's uh, nicotine pouches, uh, one of them under the brand name Zinn, that's being sold. And he wants, he's, wants government agencies to investigate and possibly crack down on it. And I'm thinking, this is great. So in other words, people can get their nicotine without having any of the harmful effects of tobacco. It's completely separate from anything that has to do with tobacco. I think what's happened is, I think it's, it's it, people just need to be better educated. I think over the years, people have always e equated nicotine with tobacco. So they become sort of like absolutists. If, you, if they want you to stop smoking tobacco because of its harmful effects, they associate anything that they know has been associated with tobacco smoke, which includes nicotine, as evil. And so it's a, like zero tolerance of anything that makes them think of tobacco. That's the only thing I can think of. When I'm on an airplane, I'm sure this happens around the world, but in the United States, as the as we're getting ready to take off, the uh, flight attendants will announce, of course, smoking is prohibited and uh, including uh, nicotine pouch pouches and uh, smokeless tobacco, like chewing tobacco. And it always it always uh, I don't say anything, but I always wanted to ask, well, wait a minute, I can understand why you don't want smoking on the plane, because everybody's going to be breathing in the smoke and it's good even even if it didn't have secondhand harmful effects, it's very annoying to a lot of people. So it's inconsiderate. So I can understand that. But if you're putting something in your mouth, nobody has to even know about it. Nobody's smelling it. No. So why is that prohibited? Obviously, it's, again, it's tobacco. Tobacco is bad. On the other hand, here's the disconnect. So the same people who want this all prohibited are completely okay. In fact, they encourage you to choose nicotine gum or nicotine patches uh, to help you quit smoking. So then you may ask, and of course, uh, the, the research shows that nicotine e-cigarettes actually are more effective to get people to quit smoking than the, the gum or the patches. Uh, and, in, and also, varenicline uh, is not as effective. It has side effects and some people don't tolerate it well. The most it looks like the, the most effective means so far. And there have numerous studies coming out. Just another one in the New England Journal of Medicine a few days ago uh, that that suggests that uh, um, out of all the methods people can use to try to get to stop smoking cigarettes, nicotine e-cigarettes seem to be the most effective way. Yet, so yet people uh, don't like to see. Uh, people vaping with nicotine cigarettes and they discourage it in public places, even though at the same time they're encouraging nicotine gum or nicotine patches. So then you, you might ask if you're a logical person, okay, so then it's not the nicotine that you have a problem with because you're okay if I chew it or put it on my skin. So what is it? And I, again, this is my speculation. I think it's probably because when you're vaping, it reminds people of smoking because it's kind of a similar thing. You know, you're inhaling and exhaling. And th over the years, it's, it's become an emotional thing now. It's not rational. It's emotional. Vaping looks like smoking. Smoking is bad. 
Therefore, we can't allow ourselves to tolerate anything that even remotely reminds us of smoking. That's the only explanation I can come up with. Doctor, you've been talking a lot about combustion generally and the difference. So um, just generally, why would it be more rational or giving people a choice uh, to have to have a choice you know, for for safer nicotine consumption? So could you maybe elaborate for our listeners, since there is a lot of misinformation about this subject, what is the difference between combustion and finding ways for safer um, nicotine uh, consumption, such as when it comes to nicotine vaping, for instance? Well, when the combusted tobacco smoke, you know, from lighting it on fire, has the highest concentration of carcinogens and all of the other harmful chemicals that rapidly get in, absorbed into your system as you inhale them. Uh, other forms of tobacco have lower concentrations of that. So for example, uh, tobacco in a chewing form or a snus, which is uh, you know very popular in Scandinavia uh, and it's legal in the United States and in Canada, but it's strangely, it's illegal in much of Europe. Um, this is this is made from tobacco, but it's made from tobacco that's processed in a different way so that when you're in, when you're taking when you're getting your nicotine from that from tobacco that's processed that way, you're exposing your body to fewer of the harmful chemicals in the tobacco leaf. So um, to me as a doctor, I would be thinking, you know, if you could come up with, if you like your nicotine and the easiest way to get nicotine is through um, tobacco because it has such a high concentration of nicotine in it. And you've come up with a way of getting your nicotine from tobacco, but avoiding many of the other harmful compounds in tobacco. I think that's a good thing. I think there should be as many options available. We shouldn't discourage. I personally, I think a nicotine pouch like Zinn is even better because now you don't have any tobacco, so you don't have to worry about tobacco's uh, harmful components, even in the slightest way, getting into your system because it's completely separated from tobacco. But some people might want it in a different form. Maybe they like the flavor of, of uh, snus. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, let a, let a, a thousand flowers bloom. If you could find a way to get your nicotine, which, like I say, by itself, nicotine is a relatively harmless drug. Uh, and if you can find a way to get it in a safer form, that's wonderful. It, it, even if it's not the safest form, even if there are you know five different ways where you can get it in a safer form and some are better than others, any one of them is better than just directly from combustible tobacco smoke. So I don't think it should be discouraged. I think it, I think people should should be encouraged to try whatever they works for them. Thanks so much. Uh, you've been mentioning pouches, snows. You've been mentioning vaping, um, and we have different countries around the world and a very contrasting environment, political environment, when it comes to less harmful uh, nicotine alternatives. For instance, if we look at India or if we look at Australia, vaping is quite very much demonized. But if we look at the UK or New Zealand, we, we know vaping has been used as a smoking cessation tool and it has been progressing. Sweden is using snooze and it's close to smoke-free goal. So what would you say, what's your stance on how the perfect policy for less harmful nicotine alternative should look? 
Well, I'm a little concerned actually lately in the UK, as you know, while they are very practical and good about encouraging people who are tobacco smokers to switch to e-cigarettes. So they realize its benefits. Now they seem to be taking steps to prevent people from otherwise using e-cigarettes. So in other words, the only time it's good is if you're using it to quit tobacco. But if you just enjoy the the pleasure of the nicotine and uh, of the, a lot of people enjoy the experience of inhaling and exhaling vapor, they want to discourage that. Uh, a lot of times, of course, they base it on the false uh, assumption that this is encouraging young people to take up smoking or and that it's a gateway drug to smoking. The evidence, first of all, in the United States, teen smoking and teen vaping is down. In fact, it's never teen smoking has never been lower since we've been uh, analyzing it. And teen vaping is even down. And the research suggests that most of the teens who are vaping would otherwise be smoking cigarettes. So there's there's nothing really to back up the suspicion that get that allowing vapes to be out there where young people can get their hands on it, even though in most countries it's not for sale under a certain age. Um, you know, young people have a way of getting it. And uh, there's, there's this concern that it's making them into smokers. The evidence doesn't support that. The evidence is, is supports that it may be preventing teen smokers from smoking. That's number one. Number two, you should not make public policy for adults based upon things that may not be good for children, because we're talking about adults here. And uh, so if we're going to do that, if we're going to not let adults engage in anything that minors may misuse to their harmful effects, then I think we should consider banning automobiles because uh, I don't know how it is in, in your country, but in my country, in many states, you can, st you can get a driver's license at the age of 16 or even younger. And we know that the younger you are, the higher the chance that you're going to have an accident. Uh, and not use good judgment when you're driving. So since children can end up driving cars and get in an accident, maybe we should not let anybody drive cars. It's the same logic. Uh, I just thought, I think it's bad policy to, to um, prohibit adults from engaging in, in behaviors simply because children who engage in that same behavior may hurt themselves. You just don't, you don't allow children to do it and you, uh, and you have their parents be responsible for that. Thanks. We're we're slowly moving to the final part of our interview. And I just, as a last question, I just want to ask you, as a public health uh, policy expert, as a practicing surgeon who sees all these discrepancies in uh, public health policies and also makes tremendous efforts to address them, what would be your message to the consumers? What do you think they should be doing? I think consumers should be uh, actually making it very well known. I'm talking, if you don't mind, consumers of e-cigarettes, they should make it very well known to all of their representatives in, in, in the legislature uh, that um, they're adults and they have a right to make their own decisions and that their autonomy is being violated when uh, people in government try to tell them they can't engage in a behavior that is not hurting anyone else. And in fact, it's not even hurting them. There's no evidence that it's hurting them. Uh, people could, could, you know, make the case, well, you know, it's not been around long enough. Maybe some of the, there's some chemicals in that vapor 
that over long term can be harmful. Maybe, maybe I'm not denying that's not a possibility, but we don't have any evidence yet. And even then, if it is, it still should be up to the individual uh, what they want to do. You know, they people go skiing. Skiing can be very dangerous. You could break a leg. You could break your neck. People go scuba diving. We People have to be allowed to make their own choices uh, and informed choices. And the only role uh, I can see for government in these situations is to provide the information and then let people make their choices. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure listening to you and conducting this interview with you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for making time for us again. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, and for those of us who were listening to us, first of all, make sure to get acknowledged with more works of, of Dr. Singer. They're amazing articles about public health. So make sure to follow these. Also make sure to check out our website at worldvaporslines.org and stay tuned because we'll be back with another episode very soon. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with doctor's perspective on less harmful nicotine alternatives, how the public health policies should work around them, generally on how harm reduction works. Make sure to get familiar with Dr. Singer's works because they're, they give very fruitful perspective on public health and public health policies generally. Uh, also, please uh, become members of the World Vapors Alliance if you have not done so and follow our activities at worldvaporsalliance.com. Uh, with this, I would like to wrap up, but also tell you to stay tuned for the next week's episode. Vape on!